So the leading voice on public health, uh, Dr. Vivek Murthy, who is the U.S. Surgeon General, has declared an epidemic of loneliness and isolation. And there's lots of statistics that he has kind of delved into. And um, as we are kind of exploring this new sermon series on what it is to love your neighbor, I don't want to start with the statistics. I want to start with his words because I think they're rather powerful. And so these are the words of the U.S. Surgeon General on what he has declared an epidemic of loneliness. And remember, this is the leading voice on public health for our nation. So allow me to read this quote for us. It's on the screen if you're like me and like the visual as well as the, the auditory. So people began to tell me they felt isolated, invisible, and insignificant. Even when they couldn't put their finger on the word lonely, time and time again, people of all ages and socioeconomic backgrounds. So this covers, this covers everyone, y'all. From every corner of the country would tell me, I have to shoulder all of life's burdens by myself. Or if I disappear tomorrow, no one will even notice. I think that's pretty powerful statements for a health official to take note of with people. Not just their physical health, but their mental and their emotional well-being. Because our emotional and mental well-being affects our physical well-being. And that even before we had a pandemic, even before we had political division, about half of US adults reported experiencing measurable levels of loneliness, about half. And it's not just that loneliness, you know, we think about it of being alone, it's, it's not being alone, it's a lack of connection. And it can actually increase premature deaths levels comparable to maybe smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And it also has another multiple layer impact on our physical health. It'll increase 29% um, your um, risk of heart disease, 32% increased risk of stroke, 50% increased risk of developing dementia among older adults. And I know that we, we live this world now and um, it's, it's a very dramatic pace for a lot of us. There's a lot of change. Um, we move more than we have ever in previous generations. We change jobs more often as well. We are living with technology that profoundly affects us in multiple levels. A lot of ways it makes life a lot more efficient, but it means that we try to cram more in because suddenly we feel like we have more time to do it or this lie of being able to suddenly multitask in life. And we are living in this place where we talk with each other face to face a whole lot less. We have a lot less conversations and communications that are real and meaningful. And we can be alone, even surrounded by people. You can be alone in a crowd. You can feel lonely in a crowd because loneliness, again, has less to do with being alone and more to do with lack of connection and the quality of your connections. And a lot of times we look at this and we think, oh yes, it must be a lot of the elderly are experiencing this. But the reality is it's actually more significant among younger generations. Those who are 15 to 24 years old experience 70% less social interactions than those who are two decades older than them. 70% less social interactions. And I know this, and you know this, is that for some kids, you know, as we like to refer to them, being online 
has been a great way to find community and connection at times when they've not been able to. And I'm not faulting it, but they are still lonely. And we need to pay attention to that. We need to pay attention to this epidemic. And I think, especially as a church, we are drawn to this. And I think it's part of the reason also that we are drawn to caring for younger generations, why we feel this is a tug for us as a community, and that we are looking to pour more resources into ministry to students and younger generations by freeing Kevin's time to focus more on that and to focus on mentoring not only youth but also other leaders to care for younger generations because we sense that there is an epidemic, a lack of connection amongst these individuals. Now, part of the overall issue with loneliness is not only our disconnect and our connection to technology that provides a lot of disconnect. We've also withdrawn as a culture. We've withdrawn from a lot of activities that used to actually encourage us to be with one another. One of those things was church or recreational leagues, bowling, things like that. We have no longer engaged in those as much. So one, we have technology that often disconnects us from each other. And then we also have chosen to not participate in things that used to put us into connection with one another. And as we have engaged in this, the interesting thing is that when we engage in things that don't bring us together, the fascinating thing is that the, the longer a person is disconnected, it is easier for them to stop believing that others have their best interests in mind, or even their interests in general. And they start to believe that it's not even possible to find common connection. So their isolation leads to them feeling more and more isolated. And I sometimes look at this, especially in our political climate, and maybe it's not our political problems of divisiveness, but more so a cultural problem where we cannot see each other as collaborators, but as critics and competitors, as people who are seeking to take from one another rather than to give. And the thing is, the countermeasures for loneliness are rather simple, and they can make a huge difference and that, you know, I gave you all the statistics about your physical well-being and how it can be damaged by loneliness. Well, 50% increase in your odds of survival if you have healthy connections for the next, you know, seven years. Like your odds of surviving for the next seven years go up 50% if you have healthy social connections. So social connections matter. And they're not expensive in terms of dollars. They're just usually expensive to us in terms of time and effort. We need to start eating meals together again. We need to start gathering again with one another in relationship. We need to volunteer sometimes to help each other out more often. Because again, social connections matter. The role of community building was often the responsibility of the church. And we've lost that. And I think we're seeing that loss in this loneliness epidemic. There's a professor of behavioral sciences at the London School of Economics, Dr. Paul Dolan. And he says this, we are not meant to be lonely as a species. If you were to think of the most significant interventions to improve life expectancy after quitting smoking, it's don't be lonely. I know, easier said than done. But I think it's significant that this is, this is not just, hey, we see this in the medical field, but we see this across the board. And again, yes, we often think that older people are the most lonely. 
usually they start to lose connection, especially as they retire and no longer engage in even workplace connections. And as they get older, there's less of them around. But we know that young adults are loneliness. Young adults are twice as likely as seniors to report loneliness. We need one another. And you can find loneliness, this lack of connection, everywhere. We find it in our neighborhoods. We find it in our offices, our workplaces, our schools, our retirement communities. You can even find it in your church, on the ball field, in college dormitories. It's everywhere because it's not about being alone. It's about being disconnected. And as Christ followers, especially if you were here last Sunday, you should know how dangerous loneliness is because it is the first thing that God declares not good in creation. See, God in, in creating the world, as Kevin described for us last week, is running through everything, and it's good, it's good. Snakes are good. Spiders are good. Tigers and bears, oh my, are good. All good. But Adam, the first human, by himself, not good. This comes to us from Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord said, it's not good that the human is alone. I will make him a helper that is perfect for him. I haven't unpacked that word helper for you, so I'm not going to dig into it. As a woman, I always kind of like cringe at the word helper, but it's a, it's a really powerful Hebrew word that is talking about a partner in life, one that sustains and joins you in the mission. But I want us to focus more on this idea of God declaring loneliness, the very first thing God declares not good, not necessarily sinful, but not good, is loneliness because we were created to be in community. We were created to be together. We were created to be alone. We are created to be in healthy, life-giving relationships with our creator and with each other. We were created to be known and community, relationship. Is, it's not just good. It's very good. And we learn that there is no shame in the community, that the two could be naked. Yes, that's a physical nakedness with one another that the man and the woman had. But even more so, there's this idea of being spiritually, emotionally exposed to one another, vulnerable with one another in real ways. They felt no shame. They were fully themselves, warts and all. They didn't have to hide. They didn't feel the need to hide from one another. And hear me on this. This is not about marriage so much as it about relationship. God's original intention is for us to be safe with one another, to be in community, to belong with one another, to be able to know that it's okay. It's okay to be who I am. Now, understanding that God's intention, that there were supposed to be no barriers to connection, no division, no fighting, we also see in this first story that Adam and Eve choose another way. They choose to make themselves their own gods. And in doing so, they become disconnected from God, from the earth, from each other. No longer were they safe and free to be exactly as God created them to be. And now there is fear of judgment, fear of critique, relational realities of disrespect, rudeness, jealousy, slander, manipulation, withdrawal, insults, cutting words, all the things that we try to avoid in relationships or walk away from, they now creep into our shared story. And it wasn't long before Adam and Eve are lonely, hiding from God, 
and turning against one another. They start playing the blame game really quickly. No, it's her. No, it's him. No, it's the snake. And it just devolves from there. And we as humans have wrestled with loneliness ever since. And let, let's be honest here. A lot of poor decisions are made based on our desire to be known, to connect. What is peer pressure, if not a desire to be accepted, to have a sense of belonging? How many poor relationships have started or continued too long because of a fear of loneliness? How many dysfunctional friendships have you put up with or tolerated because of a fear of loneliness? And yet, even in those situations where we feel like we have company and we don't have a lack of people, we still have a lack of connection because it's not safe, is it? You can be lonely at a party. You can be lonely at work. You can be lonely at school. You can be lonely at the Thanksgiving dinner table. And part of this, I think, is also due to our priorities, what we put in emphasis, what we strive for. We cram so much into our lives that we have no time for connection. We think, I need that extra degree, so I'm going to take on these classes. This job in this different city, it is the prime opportunity for me. Even though it's going to take me away from friends and family, I got to go for this. We love to travel every weekend. We're never home. This excessive need that we have to be plugged in to the internet, video games, or TV, disconnecting from people in the very room with us, or doom scrolling often on our phones, suddenly finding that we have lost hours of our day. Or maybe you have that need to live in a better neighborhood, a better school district, and again, you're moving away from the social connections you had in order to have a better social standing. And even though you know, we're going, oh, we can stay connected, is it really the same? Or do we explore all those millions of activities we involve ourselves in, or more importantly, we involve our children in for their betterment? We expect fulfilling relationships will somehow just magically fit in our very compressed free time. We'll cram it in the margins that we continue to expand into, margins that are slowly being eliminated. And there's no space for us to have real connection. We have surface conversations because we do not have time for anything more. Why do you think we answer when somebody asks, how are you doing? I'm fine. Because you don't have the time to explain that you're really not fine, and they probably don't want to hear it anyway because they don't have time to hear it. We are never alone, but we are lonely and unfulfilled. The thing is, though, we are not alone in this because even those of us in the room who are going, yeah, I feel that, we also worship a God who experienced loneliness. Jesus suffered from loneliness. Have you ever felt completely unseen by someone who was supposed to know you? someone who professes to love you, but doesn't understand you. You're sitting there going, how could you not know this about me? How could you not even see my hurt and my struggle in this? How could you not see that I was so quiet at the dinner table, feeling completely unnoticed, unseen, unconnected? I can tell you my own experiences in this at times of being in a room full of friends that I love dearly, and they're having a conversation in which I cannot participate but also causes me deep pain because it is something I desperately want to be able to have a conversation about. I can remember in seasons of singleness going, yeah, I'd love to talk smack about my partner. I'd love to complain about my children, but I don't have any. 
and it's made me in particular very sensitive at times of going, there are sometimes conversational topics that we need to recognize aren't for everyone or to make a way in for people. Because I've been on the outside before, even in the crowd, feeling ignored and left behind. Some of the loneliest moments in our lives are spent with friends and family. People who should know us don't see us. And I think this is exactly what Jesus experienced from his own family of origin. And I want us to dig into this section from Mark 3. It's verses 20 to 21 and 31 to 35. I'm going to read them for us on the screen, but if you have a Bible with you or you want to dig into it yourself, you're welcome to bust that out and read along with. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. It was that crowded. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. These are interesting words for us to see. And from the very beginning in this passage, we see that Jesus' family wants to take him away. They want to come fetch him. They went out to take charge of him, as, as you could understand it a little bit better in the Greek, or went out to seize him, as this translation uses. Or even they went out to arrest him. Now, we're not given specifics on what causes this reaction in Jesus' family. Are they embarrassed? Do they feel that as Jesus is the oldest son in this family that he should be at home with them? taking care of their mother, taking care of the family business? Are they worried about him because of what he is stirring up that he may catch the attention of the authorities in a bad way and they want to protect him? We don't know. It could be any of those things. It could be all of them. It could be something else. But I think for his family, yes, Jesus had brothers and sisters, by the way. Don't think that Mary and Joseph didn't have kids after Jesus. They gather up and they travel from Nazareth down to Capernaum to be with Jesus, to fetch him, bring him home, detox him, whatever they feel they have to need to do with him. And I think they thought long and hard of this as they walked for 20 miles to go get him. They had to be certain that they were doing the right thing for their family and for him. And when Jesus hears that his family has arrived to come get him, when the people who should have understood him the most totally don't get him, and Jesus turns around at this comment and does something very Jesus-like. He asks a question. If you've ever paid attention to what Jesus does and when he speaks, he asks more questions than he answers. I think that's interesting. Who are my mother, brothers, and sisters, he asks. And then Jesus does something very un-Jesus-like. He gives an answer. He answers his own question, even. Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother sister, and mother. In this moment, Jesus defines the family of God. And it's not biological. It's not based on birth. It's not based on who you grew up with. It is based on connection and relationship. It's based on doing the will of God, being in relationship with God and in relationship with the people of God. That is what it is to be part of the family of God. Meaning that those who respond to God's invitation to live in his kingdom Remember, his kingdom is, is present now, whether or not we want to recognize it. 
And it is at odds with this world at times, this world that is very uncompassionate, very cruel, very heartless, and it pushes against it. And we have an invitation to live in that kingdom here and now and invite others into living that way as well. And a better way to understand this idea of kingdom in scripture is to understand the rule or the reign of God, because that knows no boundaries. This is not some magic kingdom. This is the reign of God in which we live. And it means to live on mission together, to live in God's reign and invite others in. Very simply put, taking from scripture itself, our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And when you think about that phrase, what it is to be a disciple of Christ, is to be somebody who's committed to loving God and loving others. And this love is for the transformation of the world, for the betterment of the world, for people not to be lonely, for people to be seen and known, cared for, to have an everyday faith that loves God and loves others, not just in word, but also in action. And when we live like this, we declare who our family is. Jesus' very stated mission that he gives was to eliminate whatever barrier that keeps us from God, to bring us into relationship with God and with each other so that we would not experience loneliness because we would know that God was with us and that the family of God was with us as well. Jesus promises an answer to our loneliness. He promises a, this a new family. And this is an echo out of the Old Testament as well. That Psalm 68 says to us, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. These were often the most vulnerable members of a community. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing. He leads us out of the captivity of isolation that we experience. We are now part of a family that will last longer than bloodlines when we share in the mission of Jesus. It creates this eternal family that goes on, that will not be defined by biology. It is connected by the blood of Jesus, those who do the will of God. And as Jesus summed it up for us, it is to love God and love others. That is what the law and the prophets rest on. And in the next few weeks, I want us to examine, I want us to explore how we are on mission together in this mission to love God and love others, to love our neighbor, because this loneliness epidemic is something I think we are called to answer with our very lives. I believe that we are called to answer this loneliness epidemic with our very lives. Now, for today, I want to make things simple. I want to give you two challenges, two things. I want you to think about and rest in the knowledge that you belong, that you already have a family defined as Jesus defined it. I want you to rest in that. And I know that sometimes we, we feel lonely, and that is valid. That is what you feel. I don't want to say that you are wrong in that, because our feelings are often tugs for us to understand what is going on. Jesus himself was abandoned by his birth family in this moment. He reminds us, though, at the same time that his family is our family, his family that he invites us into, and we are connected to it always, regardless of what we feel. The truth of it is that we belong. And second, I want you to pray. I want you to pray, God, who do I need to invite to the table? We use a, a dining room table here for our communion table on purpose because it invites us to consider the relationship that God invites us into. Much like family sits around a table 
talking about their days, exchanging ideas, exchanging stories, connecting with one another, seeing one another, caring about one another, as well as engaging in a meal together. That is what it is to be in the family of God, that similar experience. Who do you need to invite to the table? I want you to make that prayer and see and notice who comes to mind, who maybe you start to see that you haven't seen before. Now, I'm not asking you to go chase them down and give them a three-point sermon. You don't need to do I'm asking you to pray, notice, and then ask God what you should do. I want you to notice the people around you. I want you to put down the phone, look up. Who's right in front of you? Who are your neighbors? Who are your coworkers? Because neighbor, neighbor is not a geographic term for us as Christ followers. It is a term of relationship. So who are your neighbors? Your coworkers, your friends, your family, strangers that need to become friends, invited to sit at the table with you. Now the basic answer to what should I do with these people is always to love them, yes. But I want you to also invite God into this process. How can I love them best? How can I love them for who they are and who God is calling them to be? Can you allow them to be seen in a crowd? Can you allow them to know that they are not alone in the crowd because of your kindness, your compassion, your care for them? So this week, I want you to rest in the knowledge that you belong. Live in that. Know that in the core of your being. Know that your belonging is resting on Christ, not on your circumstances. And look for others who may need this message as well. Allow me to pray for us as we turn our eyes to Christ's table. Gracious Lord, we come before you burdened by the world, burdened by what we all have experienced at some point in our lives and that we know that others do as well. God, give us eyes to see your children, to see this world as you see it, and to love this world, these people, as you love them. God, as we seek to love our neighbors, allow us to know that we are surrounded by neighbors. Give us eyes to see them and hearts to love them and hands to care for them. We ask all of this in the beautiful, powerful name of Jesus. Amen.